Genesis, <coughs> excuse me, 19, looking at the light, a, law, a life of someone, and God gives us as an example. I believe it really shows us a lot. And before we get to this life, I want to ask you a question. I don't want you to raise your hand. I want to ask you a question. If you right now could answer, would answer truthfully, let's just use last week as an example. Did you, young person, respond to everything God told you to do? I know that the answer would have to be truthfully no with some of you. Because I was in college at one time. And I went through tons of good preaching. And somehow came out the other side, having said no to God. Heard so many messages. Maybe, maybe this last week you kind of, in your mind, mentally said, well, this is for the teenagers. And maybe you weren't one of those that went forward. And even maybe some of the older students who, who actually were part of those that were helping counsel. And, and you had in your mind said, it's not really for me. Maybe God dealt in your heart. Did you do everything God told you to do? Did you take every step God told you to take? Everything? You know, Pastor just talked about the destruction, imminent destruction here. Of the, the world is teetering on the brink. Okay, If you know anything about geopolitics, look out. And here we are, right? Faced with decisions every single day of our lives, are we going to give all to God? Or are we going to hold something back? You say, what does this have to do with Genesis 19? <clears throat> well, <clears throat> many times, when faced with warnings, when faced with direct conviction from the Holy Spirit, we as Christians, we as good Christians, right? How many of you in here, don't raise your hand, <laughs> would say, I'm a good Christian? Everybody in here is probably, you're coming to BCN. You're a good Christian. That does not mean you're a godly Christian who is sold out to God. I was a good Christian for a long time. Pastor's kid, I knew everything there was to, to know about the Christian life. I could preach it, say it, live it, look like I was living it. So many times in the face of warnings and, and, and appeals from the Holy Spirit through, through servants of the Lord, we push back and we say, I don't know. And it might be, young person, the smallest little thing you're not willing to give up. I'm not even talking this morning, and I'm going I'm to say this several times. This morning, my burden is not that there's some massive sin in your life. My burden this morning is for the small little things that you're not willing to get out. You know, you look at when the news happens, uh, if you live in Florida or if you go down there, people always say you should go to Florida. You should live in Florida. Florida's great. I like Wisconsin. I don't like hurricanes. You can shovel your snow off. You can't really shovel a hurricane away. So a hurricane <laughs> comes through, excuse me, quite often to Florida, hurricane season. And you always inevitably hear, right? Florida's made up of a couple of groups of people. One of them is the most redneck rednecks in the world. And rednecks don't move anywhere, right? They don't go, I'm going to stay in my place. Yeah, I don't know. So the people come, they're like, you got to leave, it's mandatory evacuation. I'm staying in my trailer home. That's real smart. 
And what do you always hear about? Inevitably, you always hear about that person or people like that either sadly getting killed or losing everything and almost getting killed or, you know, holding on top of their floating trailer home or pieces of it and they have to be rescued because they won't listen to obvious warnings. Like, look at your tracker on your phone. It's bigger than the screen, the hurricane is, and it's literally coming at your house. That'll nah, be good. This happened in 1969 in actually a place called Past Christian, Mississippi. We were actually our 2001-2021 ensemble. We actually drove through, you know, um, through Past Christian, Mississippi. I'm not sure if any of you guys remember that, but I remember pointing it out. We drove, we were driving, driving it's right on the Gulf, and it was literally right on the Gulf. And <coughs> I think since 1969, it's actually had some, um, some pretty bad hurricanes as well. But the storm was called Camille. And there were a bunch of revelers and, and people partying in 1969 right there on the beach, a beach house. And they were having a grand time. And these apartments, buildings, and the chief of police came up to them and he said to them, and this little, the building was literally 250 feet from the surf. And if you go, you drive down the road, there's a highway right along, um, there's a road right along the beach, uh, right on, literally right on the road, uh, on the, excuse me, on the ocean. You can take it from you know, Mississippi, Alabama, all the way to Texas. It's a slow ride, but it's beautiful. And you drive right through, and there's literally apartments and buildings right across the road. I mean, it's right there. And the chief of police came, and he said, hey, you guys, guys, you guys got to clear out of here. I mean, here comes the storm. Camille, it's no joke. You have to come. And the guy yells back, this is my land. If you want to get me off, you have to arrest me. He didn't arrest anybody. He wasn't able to persuade them to leave. So he wrote down next of kin for over 20 people. And he took their names they just laughed in his face. They had no intention of leaving. At 10.15 that evening, the front wall of the storm came ashore. And at that point, it was the most, it, the most furious storm ever recorded. 205 miles per hour winds came on. They said the raindrops were like bullets. They, were, they hit so hard. And the waves of the Gulf Coast out right there. I mean, literally, you look out your window, right there. A 30-second walk to the water. 22 to 28 feet high water coming off the coast. They came back to that little settlement, little town that we drove through. And all of Camille's damage, the worst damage was in past Christian Mississippi. And the worst building was that apartment building. And there was nothing left of that three-story structure. And the only survivor was somehow a five-year-old boy was found clinging to a mattress the next day. Okay. (coughs) All of us hear that story and we go, they're idiots, right? They've lost their minds, or they were drunk. Maybe they did lose their minds because of the drink, but they, that's incredibly foolish, to put it mildly. You're going to lose your life. If you were there, literally, road, beach, road, apartment, it's literally going to hit them at full fury, and the coast is very long. There's no protection. There's no little, you know, little harbors. There's no, nothing. It is literally the coast. Is, if you look at the Gulf Coast, it goes for a while, and this is where it just comes on and tears it up. It wasn't like it was a possibility. When the chief of police came, it was an absolute, this is going to happen. So get out. You know, young person... We hear preaching all the time, so much so that we can become desensitized to it and to a point. 
and we hear so much good preaching, and we hear appeals to do right, and we hear appeals to surrender to God, and so many times I believe that young people who really mean right in their life, they just don't move. They aren't willing to say, God, I'll give you everything. I will heed your warning. I will do what you tell me to do. This is no human persuasion. Yes, this was a chief of police at that spot. This is the Holy Spirit of God. And young person, if you think back to it, and I think back to it, and I'm grieved to think how many times I literally stiff-armed the Holy Spirit in my life. Folks, I have heard more good preaching than you can imagine. Not just here at this church and college, but I've <coughs> traveled with my dad to preachers. I heard it all. And so many times, because of fear, I'm a good kid, and if I get right, ah. or it's not that big a deal. Had that open all the time in my mind. It's not that big a deal, and I would push the Holy Spirit's conviction away. By the grace of God, I got a hold of my heart multiple times. End of high school, beginning of college. That's why I stand here today. You say, but Mr. Van... Your dad's pastor and president of the college. You, you would serve God, would you? No. Folks, just because I have a last name that's the same as the pastor doesn't mean I'm going to serve God. Just because my grandfather was, you heard about it on Sunday night, was an amazing man of God that I got to be with him until I was fourth grade does not mean I'm going to serve God. Just because I've heard all the great preaching and had a great upbringing does not mean anything unless I say to the Lord, to the Holy Spirit, yes, I will obey. You say, what does that have to do with Lot? Well, Lot, as we see in chapter 19, had gotten past the point of what we just talked about. Lot was sitting pretty. Unfortunately, he was sitting pretty in a, in a town called Sodom. I mean, think about that, folks. I, I don't even know what the equivalent is today. Probably uh, there's, there's a neighborhood in San Francisco. I forget the name of it now, but there's a neighborhood known for the debauchery that Sodom was known for. It's literally like he lived there. He moved there. And Lot is sitting there. He's sitting in the gate, okay? He's literally one of the rulers of the city. And what happens? Two angels show up and Lot at Sodom. And Lot, sitting, verse 1, in the gate, sat in the gate of Sodom. And Lot, seeing them, rose up to meet them. And he bowed himself with his face, face toward the ground. And he, and he invites him to do his house. And he shows them hospitality, and he's so respectful to them. And he calls them my lords, and he brings them in. Look at verse number 12. We're skipping over on, on purpose. We'll come back and look more specifically. Verse number 12, he says this. The men said to Lot, <coughs> Hast thou any here besides son-in-laws, thy sons, thy daughters? And he's asking them, Do you have anybody else besides you? Any other family? We will destroy this place. Because the cry of them is waxing great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord hath sent us to destroy it. And what does Lot do? He immediately believes them. He goes out. He tries to get his family. And they say no. They mock him. And verse 15, the morning arose. 
And the angels hastened Lot, saying, Rise, take thy wife and thy two daughters, which are here, let's not be consumed in the iniquity of the city, and read the next four words with me. And while he lingered. What? What? You're being told by two angels from God, we are going to destroy this city. And what does Lot do? Even though he had gone to warn his family, even though he had done some of the things, you could tell he was, there was a good man, and we'll see later, the Bible calls him a righteous man. But Lot, in the face of impending destruction, in the face of all of this, he looks back and he longingly looks at his city and he lingers there. And what did, they, what did the angels have to do? They literally to take him supernaturally out of the city. Lot had so gotten used to his sin and the sin around him. He had so gotten used to his position. He had so gotten used to probably the opulence that came with that and, and, and the privilege that came with it. He was so <coughs> desirous of keeping what he had that he did not care what came. He showed a little bit of, of interest in that going to his family, but and he just lingers. That makes no sense. It's like these people in that apartment, they stay there. Why are you lingering? You say, well, Mr. Van, what does that have to do with me? Well, most of us in here, hopefully most of us, are smart, rational adults. Smart, maybe. Rational is building, right? Most of us. And you look at the story, and you shake your head in disbelief, and you say, Lot, there's no way. I would never do that, right? Some of you just did it last week. God came to you and said, hey, this little sin, it may not seem big, but this little sin has got to get out because it's going to grow into something that will destroy your life. And you said, ah, that's okay. Go army. It's a good week. And you forgot about it. We're about to go into the missions conference. This is why my burden here, because we just heard all this preaching, and we're about to go to the missions conference, and I will tell you right now, I know you're at Baptist College of Ministry, but there are young people in this room sitting right here listening to my voice who have no idea what God wants for them, specifically. You want to serve God. The general, the general desire is there, and that's great. But, folks, that desire does not stay unless you say yes to God. It does not happen by accident. The men who are serving God, who you've heard preach, who are surf, sitting here, who are leading our college, who lead your church, the men who, of God in the past, those men did not trip and fall and by accident, boom, become a man of God. They deliberately made decisions to obey God. And when they obeyed God, they cleared the way for God to say, hey, this is what I want for your life right now. I have, now it's my 14th year working with college students after I've after getting out of college myself. And I will tell you this, one of the biggest things I hear from college students is, I don't, I don't know what God has for me. Let me ask you a question. Does he have something for you? Absolutely. And you know what? Sometimes, I mean, I was, the, the vision God gave me in, as, as, a, as a high schooler is not exactly the thing that's happening today. It's better what's happening today. 
But I will tell you, some of you just need to open your eyes, but you can't open your eyes because things are blocking the channel. Maybe little things. So how can anybody in their right mind linger? Well, I don't know. I don't know. But I will tell you this. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth that, shall he also reap. And I will tell you, young person, if you're saying today in your mind, even as I'm preaching, you're saying to yourself, and I did the same thing, I'll be okay. It'll be okay. It'll be okay. It won't be a big deal. That's not a big deal. And you're pushing away the little thing in your life. Someday that's going to come back. And I'm not just saying from here, all around this country, young people in this generation, so many times with so much potential, have ended up either just nominally coming to church or ended up turning away from God altogether. Why is that? Is it because of massive sin? Sometimes. But honestly, I think it's because of young people who are not willing to say yes to God when the little things are exposed. And you get, so we get so wrapped up in everybody else and everything else, and we don't listen to what God has for us. You know, sometimes Satan just convinces us to buy into that world's agenda. Sometimes this holy living thing is it just, ah, just a little too much, too, too far, one step too far. You know, sometimes that world's offer just looks a little bit more special. You know, giving your, your all to God. Maybe a bridge too far. You would never say that. But really? Ah. Maybe there's some things in your life, and I remember talking to one young person, and I said, hey, you know, God wants to use you, and all these things. He looked at me and says, you just don't understand, and you never will. I had this and this and this in my upbringing, and it just won't ever work. Okay. I want to understand. But God's trying to help you. And this person, fortunately, praise the Lord, is serving God today. But I will tell you this in your life right now, I don't have to be the Holy Spirit, and you don't have to be the Holy Spirit. Neither one is good. I'm not going to force you, and you shouldn't be introspective. The Holy Spirit can do it for you. And right now, if the Holy Spirit's working, there's little things, and it's like, oh, that's it. Mm-hmm. And it's like the angel coming and saying, hey, destruction's coming. Let's get out. Let's go. And if you say no, you're lingering, and it's foolish. So how does one get to the point of lingering? How is it possible for a man like Lot, a righteous man, to stay in Sodom, grasping vainly for what the worldly accomplishments and the wealth that he had while God was going to rain down fire brimstone on their heads? How does that make any sense? Well, here's a simple reason. Let me ask you one more question. How did he even end up there? Here's a simple reason. He longed for it. He longed for it. Look at three simple points this morning. The first one is the life that longs for the world. What does this word longing mean? It really comes down to something that's a strong desire. It's something you literally, you can't get out of your mind. You have to have it. There was a time, I did, a, um, I did for a couple of weeks, I did a low-carb diet. Um, I, I, when I lost my 40 pounds a couple of years ago, I... Uh, didn't do a low-carb diet. I just did like a no-sugar diet. That was a little better. Low-carb diet. Have you ever done a low-carb diet? You lose your mind. So how, carbs, I don't know. Like the lack of carbs. I, 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 would, I would 
don't laugh at me, okay? But this is what happens. I would literally go to the go to the, to the pantry, open the door, stand there, and st- there was a somehow I had a bag of Gardettos before I started the diet, and it just sat there, mocking me. And I would sit there looking at it, going, "Man, if I could just have one little ride chip." I'd be so, and my wife would come back and just she would gently close the door. Don't look in there, Dana. Suck it up. I'd look at all the stuff. I would literally long for all the food I couldn't have. I was hungry 24 hours a day. Start a diet. You, you know what I'm talking about. You start a diet and somehow you get hungry all the time. Like literally the rest of your life. <clears throat> I had jaw surgery when I was uh, a senior in college. I had braces when I was a senior in college, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I graduated with braces on my teeth um, twice in my life. I had, so I had jaw surgery, and for four weeks, no solid food. None. I'm 21 years old. Okay? Got to the point where I said, I thought my mom was gone. She would not approve of this uh, originally. She was fine with it once she found out what I was doing. But my sister, I think, made me a pizza. You said, you're nuts. I did not blend it up. I ate it with my tongue. I was so desperate. I am not kidding. You said you have a strong tongue. Oh, you better believe it. <laughs> I, ate, I, I was so sick of shakes and so sick of sunny side up eggs, literally slurping sunny side up eggs, <laughs> that I would get pizza, cut it into little pizza, and eat it on the top of my mouth just because I wanted it so bad. Okay, maybe you've never been there, but oh man, I, I literally would just sit there in my chair and dream of food. <laughs> that day I got a steak for the first time after, after surgery. It was like six weeks in and they fully cleared me for anything. And I will tell you, oh man, it didn't taste as good as it was, you know, but it was just that feeling of I'm actually chewing something. You know, <clears throat> I've been away from my wife for periods of time here and there traveling internationally, whatever else. When I was engaged to my wife, I, I was actually away for most of the summertime before I got married. And I will tell you, I, just to see her, I, I couldn't think of anything else. I, I want to see my wife to be my fiance. You know, we had a trip. I took a trip down uh, to, to, to Iowa to surprise her where she was living at the time. And seven or eight hour drive. And literally, she had no idea I was coming for eight hours. All I could think about was Alyssa Swanson, Alyssa Swanson, Alyssa Swanson, Alyssa Swanson. Got there, saw her for a few hours, came back the next day. Alyssa Swanson, Ben Swanson. On the way back! When I'm away on an international trip, okay, I've been married for 11 years, I still think about my wife and my kids all the time. Because I long for them. Let me ask you a question. What do you long for? You say, well, how... How did, how did, what, was, what was Lot longing for? Look at verse chapter 13. Chapter 13. Lot was longing for the things of this world. Verse number 5. Lot had, he went with Abram, his, his uncle, had flocks and herds and tents. The land was not able to bear both of them. They both were very rich. That they may dwell together for their substance was great. There was a strife between the herdmen. It was not a good thing. So, what does Abram do? He says to Lot, verse 8, that there'll be no strife, I pray, between thee, me and thee, between my herdmen and thy herdmen, for we be brethren. We're related here. We can't do this. Is not the whole land <coughs> before this what he was promised? Separate thyself, I pray thee, from thee, and if thou wilt take the left hand, thou wilt go to the right, or if thou part of the right, right hand, then will I go to the left. On the verse number 10, and Lot lifted up his eyes and beheld all the plain of Jordan. It was well watered everywhere, 
before the Lord destroyed God, Sodom and Gomorrah, it's even as the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as the compass in the Zohar. So it must have been absolutely gorgeous. Then Lot chose him all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east. And they separated themselves the one from the other. Okay? So he, he chose that way. But look at the next verse. Abram, we know this, dwelled in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelled in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent towards Sodom. If Sodom and Gomorrah were known for the debauchery they were known for, I don't think it escaped Abraham and Lot's attention. And Lot took his tent, and he pointed it where he wanted it to go. Young person, I'm not saying this morning that we, I'm looking at a bunch of people who have moved into Sodom, so to speak. That's not what I'm saying. But there might be a few of you that have pitched your tent in your face in Sodom. What would Sodom be? The world. We hear about the world so much today. What does the world mean? Well, I'll tell you what it means. It means absolute filth. You know, when I grew up in 19, I was born in 1987, during Ronald Reagan's presidency. When I first became aware of things, my memories come into play, the world that I remember back in the early 1990s and the world of 2023 are starkly different. But the world of 1993, two, three, four, and the world when my dad grew up is starkly different. But the world in which he grew up and the world when his dad grew up are starkly different. You keep going back generations. What happens? We have progressively gotten better, right? No. Progressively, over the years, have literally fallen into a cesspool of absolute debauchery. And even in America, right in front of our eyes, it's there. The clothing fashions, the movies, the whole movie industry, the celebrity culture, everything about it, all the technology, everything points towards debauchery and sin. And if you don't believe it, just look at what they're doing and what they're saying. They don't have your best interest in mind. All right? Uh, proof, I mean, look at, look at Israel versus Hamas. When people who you think are upstanding people in society are supporting people who decapitate 40 babies' heads, you got a problem. Because they so hate the people of God. When you have people that so hate Christians, they'll do anything they can take to shut them up. Over in England, people have been jailed for praying in their heads, in their hearts, silently praying outside of an abortion clinic. Put in jail for the thoughts of their mind because they're Christians. This world hates you. The, the, the fashions of this world are not made to glorify God. They are made to glorify the fallen one, Satan. They are made to uplift the movies and the culture of Hollywood and the culture of what comes out of our technology and all of that, the social media. <coughs> that culture is not something to be glorified. It is something that, that absolutely destroys people's lives. And I think we know that. But young person, let me ask you a question. How many of you down deep in a hidden place in a compartment in your life, you long for that? I understand because when I was that age, sometimes you're like, ah, you feel kind of, you, you look at it, <coughs> you have that moment of, 
But I will tell you, at 36 years old, looking back and having young people that I'm trying to shield from the world, I have nothing but absolute hatred for the world. Now, I'm not perfect, but I will tell you right now, I, it comes into clear focus. I have a four-and-a-half-year-old boy, and I don't want him falling into the sin that I struggle with and many other men struggle with. And going farther, the world wants you to go farther, right? That precious little pure boy, those big old eyes, he's not, by God's grace, going to fall into that stuff. But it's going to be a fight to the death from daddy and mommy. And by the way, if I sell myself and pitch my tent towards Sodom, he's done. Why am I standing here on stage? Because my father and mother served God. Now, not every time does it happen. You have to make decisions. But praise the Lord, I had people in my life that showed me the path. By the way, folks, if you're as parents and you take the left turn, you are, your kids are going to follow you and more. So you're sitting here going, I'm not there, though. I'm not living in Sodom. But you long for it. Just a little bit. Just this much. And much more than me, the older men in this room can tell you, just that little bit can turn into absolute destruction of a life. I can tell you that from experience of people in my classes that were in my high school classes and unfortunately some that sat in these pews with me. They're good kids. They're leaders. They're fellowship presidents. They're fellowship vice presidents. Man, they're the best kids we've ever had come as freshmen. They're this, they're that, they're everything. And I will tell you what, but they harbored some little stuff. They pitched their tent towards Sodom. You know, I knew how to walk the walk, talk the talk. I was good at that. But it didn't mean I walked with God. And you know what? You might have all of us fooled. And I've had some people that I've worked with that have fooled me. I'm a pretty discerning person, but they fooled me. And I will tell you, how does that end up? You know, if you're fooling us, you're just playing the part of the jester or the clown. When the makeup's wiped off and the mask is torn away, what are you really? What does it mean practically? Well, to pitch your tent towards Sodom, a lot of times starts with spirit sins. And you hear me talk about this all the time, young people. But I will tell you, from my experience, 14 years ago in college till now, I will tell you this is where the, the, the train derails a lot. How many times have you complained this week? I joke about my little son, little Sammy, complains. You ever heard him complain? He's pretty cute. Okay. Why do we say he's a three-month-old is cute when he's complaining? But I'll tell you what, a 20-year-old complaining is not cute. That little complaining gets your heart turned towards Sodom. That little spirit sin towards maybe even just a classmate gets your heart turned towards Sodom. Maybe your parents, your teachers, your pastor, your church, whatever it might be. You question God in your heart. You've turned your heart towards Sodom. Your lifestyle choices. You say, oh, I'm following the rules. But inside of you, when you walk into a store and your eyes go to that rack, well, I wish I could wear that. You're wearing a dress, ladies, and you walk out there and you feel, feel foolish. You feel like you're sticking out. Your heart's turned towards Sodom. You feel like you're, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just stick out. I feel like I'm, I wish I could fit in. Your heart turns toward the world. 
Maybe you're not doing it, and maybe that's not something you've ever done. But maybe you come from a great home and great training, and down deep you have this little longing. By the way, that little longing grows. Just like when I had no-carb diet, the first day it grew, and it grew, and it grew. As much weight as I was dropping, I was growing in desire to have something I couldn't have, right? You ever had that cheat day, right? Cheat days are dumb because you literally just stuff your face like, or, you know, if you're really not good at fasting, right, and, like you're doing like intermittent fasting for actual weight loss, and you, you know, you, you know, you're three, four hours, six hours, right, and then you stuff your face, how does that help anything? It doesn't, right? Listen, we, that longing grows in your heart, folks. Don't be deceived. It's not going to be this little thing 10 years from now. It will be controlling your life 10 years from now. How's your conscience doing today? Where are you at today? Are you longing for the world? Are you longing like Lot? Where is your longing? Do you long for the things of God or do you long for the things of the world? There are some young people here, you long for the things of God. But I will tell you, sometimes in 2023, it looks a little uncool to long for the things of God. You know, if we were sitting in the, in, next to Jim Elliott, Jonathan Goforth when they were in college, I don't think they would have um, cared if you thought they were uncool. Right? They would have talked to you about God and about what God was doing in their life and the vision God had for them. They didn't care about the worldly things. They didn't care. You say, how do you know that? Because look at their lives. Jonathan Goforth was surrendered in college. Janelle, my grandmother, went to college with him. The man was surrendered to God. So much so, these men gave their lives for God. Well, we got to move quickly here. Just a couple more minutes. The life not only that longs for the world, the life that lingers... Sodom <coughs> was so attractive to Lot, he moved there. He moved in to Sodom. He became, <coughs> excuse me, part of the ruling class. And he became comfortable there. And the things of the world became desensitized. Folks, he was around. He was around so much stuff. He literally was willing to give his daughters. I mean, it's hard to even speak of. He was willing to give his daughters to be abused by these men. It didn't cross his mind that that was a, it was, was mind-blowing. Here he is. He's in Sodom. He's confronted with ultimate destruction, and he lingers. What does lingering mean? It stays in a place, to stay in a place longer than necessary because of a reluctance to leave. What are you reluctant to let go of? What are you reluctant to let go Maybe it's not an actual object. Maybe it's just a, a sin or a, a feeling. Maybe it's bitterness, folks. I will tell you, you want to literally bank it, write it in, sign it, book it, deposit it forever, destroy your life, then hold on to that bitterness. Fasting, you're on the fast track to destruction. You say, well, I'm doing well right now. Not for long, you won't be. Bitterness will literally rot your life up from the inside out. Even if it's just like this. Lingering, what is that lingering? If longing goes unchecked, it always turns into lingering. It's like when you drive by Culver's. That longing, it turns into lingering. You're sitting inside the restaurant, right? 
eating some you know, cheese curds. And like, that sounds good, right? But that longing for something unchecked will always turn. Wrong desire unchecked always turns into sin. Always turns into that. Second Peter said too talks about Lot being a righteous man. He was a righteous man. The man was a, a, a man who <laughs> wanted to serve God, but every single day he vexed his righteous soul. Every day he was inside of he hurt his conscience. Every single can you imagine knowingly hurting yourself spiritually every day? But you say, "Wow, that'd be bad," but we do it. We just did it last week when God confronted us and we said, yeah, no, I won't, not, not, this, not, not this time. We vexed our soul. What happened with, with Lot? He lingered. He accepted wicked lifestyles. He had no witness for the Lord. If he did, we wouldn't be in the gate of Sodom. He had an unteachable spirit. He questioned the angel. All these things happened. Lot, he, was a, he was a good man, but he was living in the world, and his life portrayed that. By the way, what are the consequences of a life that lingers? When we're 19, 20, 21 years old, sometimes it's not really focused. We can't focus on the out there. Well, his family was destroyed. You know that, that story of the, the apartments? Everybody died. That was the consequences. That five-year-old was an orphan. Everybody's gone. His family was destroyed. Lot lost family members in Sodom. If he would have been out in, with his uncle, he wouldn't have had that happen. He was inside. He lost family members. His wife was turned into a pillar of salt. That's, I mean, we laugh about it because, you know, people make jokes about it. That, can you imagine? That'd be awful. I don't think his wife wanted to come with him. His daughters committed incest with him. Absolutely unspeakably awful and horrible. His offspring became the nations of Moab and Ammon. Folks, two of the Israel's greatest enemies throughout history were because of Lot, who was the nephew of Abraham. Folks, that's some big consequences. Your little life and your little pity sin or your little longing that you barely can see in your life, it's bigger than you think, young people. His life was honestly ruined. What great things do you hear of God of doing through Lot? Nothing. All you think of, this is Lot. Lot is a man who moved to the wicked city of Sodom. His daughters were adulterous with him, and awful things happened, and nothing, he did nothing. He, did, he, he lingered in Sodom. That's what we know. Great. Wow. Absolutely awful. But you know what? We can't have time to open up to it, but the third point is there's a contrast right in the same couple chapters. There's a contrast of a life that longs and lingers. There's a life that lives for the Lord. And that was the uncle Abraham. Abraham, who left Ur, went to Canaan when it made no sense. God said, leave. He actually didn't tell him where he was going. He said, leave. And then you know what Abraham said? You know, I'll think about it. It's a good idea. You know, the missions conference, God says, go to this place. I'll think about it, God. I, you know, I, I might do that. I might do that. That's a good idea. No, Abraham packed up and went, not knowing where he was going. He obeyed God. 
Abraham wasn't perfect, but he lived in a close, he kept his, kept his life locked in with God. When something was confronted by him, he got it right with God. He got back under God's will. In Genesis 14, he rescued Lot when he was in trouble. And then he interceded for Lot in Genesis 18. When he heard about the impending destruction of Sodom, he tried to say, if there's this many righteous men, if there's this many righteous people, if there's this, remember, his nephew's there. He intercedes for him. His, his reputation as a man of God. Let me ask you a question. Abraham or Lot? The difference between the two of them is what? Somebody longed for the world. And somebody said, I don't have time for that. I'm serving my God. So, how many of you, when God says, do it, take care of this, how many of you do it? How many of you have things in your life, small little longings, small little things? I'm not, maybe there's a massive sin. Maybe you're, maybe you're fighting a big old thing, and you've got to get it right. But you know what? This far into the, <coughs> in the school year, that's probably not the majority of us. Maybe it's a small little sin, a spirit sin, a, 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 you know, a bitterness or a, an anger towards something, or maybe it's a, <coughs> a longing. Maybe it's just literally a longing and you know it's there. And you're going to say, God, I don't want that. I don't want to step closer to the world. I don't want to get myself into Sodom. I don't want to get myself entangled. I don't want to destroy my future. I want to be free to serve God. I want to be known, not in a proud way, but I want to be known like Abraham, somebody who walked with God, who lived for God, who obeyed God, who led out for God, who rescued people who were in need, who prayed for people who were in need. That's what I want to be known as, Abraham. It's your choice, by the way. We aren't here to make you, and we can't make you. Holy Spirit's not going to make you. But you can say, God... I'm taking it. When you take that tent, you turn it back towards God. And you start taking steps of growth. And you want to, in 15, 20 years, be used of God, start churches, see people saved, change the world, if God tarries, that's the way to do it. And all those longings, even if they're really, really, really small, uproot them, tear them out, and burn them. Say, God, I'm all in. Nothing new you've heard this morning. But I think sometimes we need to be, have our attention arrested after a great week and before a great week. Young person, just because you're at a Christian college doesn't mean you're immune to somebody like Lot.